and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent. Radical and compassionate, we never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Welcome to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. I'm Karuna Jagger and I'm your host. And I'm recording from my home because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Like so many crises, COVID-19 is shining a spotlight on many of the problems with our profit-driven healthcare system. The deprioritization and lack of investment in public health, the systemic inequities that put people of color at greatest risk, exposing the myth of equality here in the U.S. And even though the novel coronavirus is new, these problems aren't. And there are parallels and lessons from previous epidemics. And so today, we're talking about coronavirus, HIV AIDS, and breast cancer. And I am really pleased to have Greg Gonzalez join me today. There is no one I would rather have this conversation with. Greg is both a health activist and academic. He began his work as an ACT UP activist and today as an epidemiologist and professor at Yale with joint positions in the School of Public Health and the Yale School of Law. And he is a MacArthur Genius Award recipient. Thanks so much for being with me today, Greg. No problem, Karina. Yeah. So I'd like to start at the beginning with your early work as an HIV AIDS activist in the 1990s in New York City. For people who may not have been on the front lines or just might not know as much about the early years of the AIDS crisis, will you take us back and tell us what was going on? Sure. So remember, HIV, actually AIDS was a new disease when it was first discovered in 1981 among gay men in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York. And it wasn't several years until the etiological agent of the cause of AIDS, the immunodeficiency virus, discovered. And so this is a novel coronavirus that was a novel retrovirus. I think people knew that retroviruses exist, but not as human pathogen. You know, like this epidemic, there was sort of slow government reaction to what was happening, mostly in the case back then because of affecting gay men, people who use drugs, sex workers poor people, black and Latino across the country and across the world. President Reagan didn't say the word AIDS or HIV until late into his second term, seven years into his presidency. And by the late 80s, there was tens of thousands of people dead from HIV in, in the country. What was interesting then is that we took matters into our own hands. I mean, early on, to help each other sort of form that are still around today, like Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York, AIDS Project Los Angeles, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, which really were about providing services to people who need them. Anything from meals to buddy programs to visit them at home when they were sick and dying, to legal support for people being evicted because they were HIV positive or lost their jobs for the same reason. But late in the 80s, groups started called the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, founded by Larry Kramer, who is one of the founders of Gay Men's Health Crisis, which is specifically devoted to sort of political advocacy around the AIDS crisis. And it was a mix of direct action and storming the NIH or the Food and Drug Administration, you know, with thousands of people, colorful banners, smoke bombs, you, know, you name it, descending on federal agencies to request faster drug approval or more and better research for HIV, along with sort of self-taught know-how about how the NIH worked, how drug development worked, so we could make rational, evidence-based 
policy recommendations to our nation's leaders. I think, you know, we transformed a lot about how you think about infectious disease. The idea of safer sex came out of the community. The early drug trials for opportunity infections like pneumocystis quinine pneumonia came out of the community. Needle exchange for uh, transmission of HIV from dirty needle to dirty needle and the concept of drug use came out of the community. And so we built up our own systems of care and then built up our own sort of expertise to force policymakers to do the right thing by our local, state, and federal governments. Yeah, thank you for sharing that history. You know, Breast Cancer Action, this is actually the 30th anniversary since Breast Cancer Action was founded. And our early members here in San Francisco really apprenticed themselves in their own words to ACT UP Golden Gate. And so our organization, you know, I think there's a a long relationship between uh, the breast cancer community and the HIV AIDS community. You know, folks talk about just the mutual learning and explicit support that the two groups or communities were providing each other. Um, so you understand, and, and our early members, you know, the first flyer that they put out says they were, you know, coming together for education and political action to end the epidemic, right? So kind of drawing on what you've said about ACT UP, from the early days, it was clear that it was going to take really extraordinary pressure to force the government to do the right thing. I'd love to hear from you an example of a, a memorable action or something that stands out in your mind, kind of a turning point for you in your own activism when you started working with ACT UP. I originally started in ACT UP Boston. And there's a year or so before I moved down to New York and ACT UP New York. And, you know, I was a young gay man living in Boston, Massachusetts, had dropped out of college, was unsure what it was going to do with my life. But there is demonstration at the State House against Michael Dukakis, who was, I can't remember if it was the year he ran for president or it's the year after he ran for president, which was my first sort of direct action in terms of the potential for risking arrest. And that sort of sucked me into. It's transformative, isn't it? <laughs> transformative. And then there were other actions like stop the church which had happened in new york but we did it against cardinal law in boston basically for his opposition to safer sex and condom use in the city of boston and among the high schoolers in the city and so for a community that felt under siege and had a disease that nobody cared about it was empowering to feel like you could get the attention of people in power who otherwise wouldn't listen to direct action and protest yeah, it is empowering. And I think this is one of the real traps of so many public health messages, which is the suggestion that people are responsible for their own health and that your power lies in, you know, healthy lifestyle choices. And from the beginning, our founders and, and I think also ACT UP really recognized that their personal crisis was part of a larger social justice and public health crisis and that, that required political solutions and political action. So you posted an iconic ACT UP poster with a bloody handprint that reads, the government has blood on its hands, one AIDS death every half hour. What prompted you to do that? And what can you tell us about the current moment? So, you know, art and iconography were a big part of ACT UP in the 80s and 90s. Because we realized the potential of the images to sort of reach people where sort of long political diatribes or policy papers might not. And more often than not, the old act of iconography by art collectors like Grand Fury and the Simon Sequel's Death Project were distillations of act of slogans or trying to sort of convey policy for given actions 
whether they're in DC, Bethesda, or home in New York City. The bloody handprint poster was all over New York at that time. New York was a little bit less cleaned up than it is now, but they were, they were on lampposts and sides of buildings were often it was boarded up and lots of posters were there. But you saw this all over the city and a lot of it was targeted at first at Mayor Koch, who was the mayor of the city at the time. And it really was about saying, look, there's death by the virus and there's death by public policy. Mayor Koch used to, to say, how am I doing? As sort of his refrain about how people thought of him as mayor. And I think the answer back then was, you're not doing very well at all. There, there are thousands of people dying in your city or you do nothing. And I think as we're in the age of COVID-19 and the novel coronavirus, that refrain comes back to, to haunt us again. You know, if Donald Trump asked, how, how am I doing? I think we can all say you delayed the response to COVID-19. You had three or four months to prepare since the first outbreaks in, in Wuhan, China. You still have not scaled up testing and contact tracing and the supplies of personal protective equipment or the production of ventilators. And so does the government have blood on its hands all these years later? Yes, again, for another virus, another disease, and another time. When do you first realize that the novel coronavirus was on track to be a global pandemic? I know that as an epidemiologist, you may have had a leg up on this, and I'm curious what you were looking for from our leaders and public health officials and when this really got your attention. I think, I don't want to say like, you know, the public health community was blameless and sort of the slow response to the novel coronavirus in the United States. But I do know towards the end of January, it's clear there are going to be a lot more cases in the U.S. and that it was not a contained epidemic. But the data wasn't clear on how it was going to spread and under what speed it was going to spread in the United States. With SARS or with MERS, two related viruses, we contained and shut them down, right? I mean, there might have been quarantines in Toronto and in Hong Kong and other places, but we shut SARS down. So the whole idea that there was going to be a global pandemic that was basically uncontrolled all across the planet was hard to believe. I think by early February, public health people were all unanimously calling for greater testing and a better response to the epidemic. I think this was coming from all sorts of people. I think, you know, it's interesting that Scott Gottlieb, who's the former commissioner of the FDA under President Trump, has been one of the most vocal voices about the need to take this seriously and to move quickly and to scale up testing, contact tracing, and isolation in the context of the coronavirus epidemic. So there is the drumbeat from both public health officials, clinicians like Dr. Gottlieb and others early on in February. And here we are in April and everybody's still sort of trying to get the attention of the White House and getting the, trying to get them to focus on what they need to do while, you know, the president establishes a council on reopening America with Jared and Ivanka with prominent roles with a couple of Wall Street old hands like Barry Kudlow or his Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. But nobody who's a public health expert, nobody who's a physician, nobody who's an economist on it. And so there's, there's just sort of, well, we got serious about it in early February. The president and the White House have hardly been serious really at all. One of the really perverse things about public health is that it's, when it succeeds, it's invisible. <laughs> you know, you talked about the SARS epidemic didn't become a global pandemic, right? You know, and there, there may be some things to do with the virus, but I think that, you know, a lot of folks have noted that if we're doing social distancing right, it's going to feel like it's too much. It's going to feel like it's over the top and unnecessary because it's working and the threat 
therefore feels less visible. I think the same is true with cancer prevention. It can be really hard for communities to you know, prove that they kept a toxic industry out of our community. And so now our kids are not being diagnosed with childhood cancer. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that, about the sort of just conundrum of public health that when it works well, people don't get sick and the, it can feel that preventative efforts are possibly unnecessary. So that is the conundrum or contradiction of public health. When we do it well, we put ourselves out of business. And when we do good smoking campaigns, when we do good campaigns against teenage drinking, and we see less of it, people don't understand that the reason you have public health was responsible for these, these important advances in, in a whole range of areas. The disease control, it's probably the most sort of apparent. As you said, SARS disappeared. H1N1 disappeared. We've had the ability to knock back epidemic after epidemic in this country, and people became complacent. Public health was assumed to be there and to be protecting us. And I think what we found out in this case is that because we often take it for granted, we've seen a slow attrition in our public health capacity over the past two decades, which led us to this point. So even when we expect it to be there, we've not given it the respect it deserves. Yeah. If you could talk more about what you've described as a slow attrition, but really is a lack of investment and a deprioritization in public health. You know, there's, these are policy choices, right? This is, these are questions about where we spend our tax dollars. Yeah. And under Republicans and Democrats, we've seen sort of, I think over the past decade or so, we've seen a 10% decrease in the CDC's budget. Over 50,000 state and local public health employees have sort of lost their jobs over the same time period. And so, they're the front line of the coronavirus epidemic, and they're working from a position of weakness, not of strength. It's just, you know, we have a robust spending on healthcare in this country, but the total percent of healthcare spending in the U.S. that's devoted to public health is 2.5%. Our priorities are really tilted towards medical interventions, high-tech interventions, end-of-life care, but not sort of the basics of disease prevention that are a public health priority rather than a medical one. When the government is not doing its job, those are the moments when you see people, the public communities come together and try to do, you know, self-help, mutuals, help, you know, peer education. And that's obviously been incredibly important for both breast cancer and HIV AIDS. And we've talked a little bit about that. I'm struck by the challenges with coronavirus. Not only is there the obvious challenge of social distancing, but I, I'm thinking a lot about the ways in which the internet has allowed space for more inaccurate information to flourish. Um, there's a lack of trust of our, you know, our president for sure. And there's just, you know, many people have a sense of floundering that they are seeking reliable evidence-based information to make their own decisions because they can't trust what they're seeing on the news. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's just the advent of new technology always sort of comes with promise and peril. I think even when the printing press was invented, you know, the, the church didn't like it because people could make up their own minds about what was written in the Bible instead of being translated by experts to them. So having like high churches of, of expertise sort of feeding you information is not always the best thing. But sort of having a fire hose of information that you have to sort through on a daily basis is not the the best thing either. There's more information out there of 
more kinds than there's ever been before. And it provides a challenge to people trying to sort of figure out who to trust in an epidemic. I think, as I've said to both fellow activists and journalists and others, it's that, you know, you have to be smart consumers of information and go to sites that are reputable and things like the CDC's website or Stat News, which is an aggregation of health journalism by the Boston Globe and its partners, you know, Science Magazine, the Medical Research Council in the UK, the NIH in, in the US, and then you triangulate. You don't just take one study you see and say, that's the answer. It's the same for HIV and the same for breast cancer. If one study says this, you want to see a confirmatory study that supports it. You want to look at the details of studies to see that they're properly powered to answer the question they posed in the first place. And it's exactly what we did for HIV. We try to figure out how to read the science and how to make sense of the science through the lens of sort of evidence-based thinking and don't sort of take the latest cure like hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine uh, at face value from the president start to dig and ask the questions yourself and look for places that are going to offer you access to the studies themselves. There's a lot of preprint servers now online that offer you unpeer-reviewed research, but it also gives you a chance to look at the data uh, from researchers as it's happening in real time. And so, again, it's sort of picking your sources for the information you want to use yourself, but also verifying and, and confirming any claims that are made that have impact on your health. Well, let's talk about treatments and what happens when we have a president who's promoting off-label use of unproven treatments. And the consequence is that folks for whom that medicine has been shown to be beneficial may not be able to get it. And other people are exposed to the harms of this medication because every medication does come with side effects and harms. And you want to make sure that's being counterbalanced by benefit. Let's talk about standards of drug approvals and what happens in a health crisis when we don't have any proven treatments and you know people desperately need safe and effective medication these are lessons that you lived through really directly you know as a man with aids and i'd love to hear you talk about the trade off between speed and efficacy and what how we should be approaching the need for medication for covid-19 right now so look I understand desperation and fear and panic. I remember when people were mixing up sort of egg lipid concoctions in their bathtub and using drugs like Nextrans sulfate, which had no relationship to AIDS, which was a blood thinner, to try to combat HIV because we didn't have any real good treatments for it. Even ACT wasn't doing sort of a lot for a lot of people the first drug that was approved for HIV. I think what we're seeing now is the President Act, not unsurprisingly, as people faced with a medical crisis, grasping at straws, um, but with really no sort of leadership, which he needs to do as president. He may be a private citizen freaking out and looking for something that might be useful to him and his family. But as the president of the United States, he needs to sort of lead, not from sort of his own fear and panic, but for what his medical professionals are telling him. And so with hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine or Demdesivir, which is a antiviral made by Gilead Pharma, Gilead Laboratories, or IL-6 inhibitors, which are people looking at to combat the cytokine storm associated with COVID-19, we're going to have to put them into randomized controlled trials. And we're going to need to put them into expanded access for those who don't qualify for the trials and do what we did for HIV and what we related to breast cancer is to sort of do the work that's necessary to tell us if these drugs are going to help us live longer or not. It's not okay for the president to say we should stockpile the disease or that people should be taking it because 
drugs have side effects, as you said, and the, the sort of therapeutic fallacy that a new drug is better than the old drug or any drug is better than no drug at all doesn't sort of comport with the sort of history of medical science in which most drugs for new diseases fail again and again. And that's what we saw with HIV. It took us 15 years or more to find a set of tools that were able to really control the virus. And so we want speed and we want reliable data. So we want to balance access and answers. And that's what we tried to do in the context of the AIDS movement. We're not interested in sort of putting drugs on the market that don't work. I think some of the early ACT UP rhetoric around the FDA is killing us were revised later by many of us to say, yeah, the FDA was a sluggish bureaucracy before we got a hold of it, but you know, we helped them think about how to do clinical trials in a different way, how to expanded access in a different way, and compassionate use in a different way. So, you know, we have some of the fastest drug approvals in the US right now. And there's the speed at which new trials for COVID nineteen are getting up and running are astounding. The interesting thing to me are are twofold. One is in the context of expanded access, I've heard reports from friends suggesting that access to remdesivir or other drugs that are in clinical trials right now, you know, if you're in Boston, if you're Mass General, you may be getting the latest drug trials at your site or at BMC, which is poor people in the city, you're not getting access to these new drugs. And so we have to think about the equity issues that are happening in the context of access to clinical trials and expanded access programs in the context of COVID-19. But that was always the case in the HIV days too. There are a lot of clinical trials were happening at big university research centers, while if your city didn't have one, you were just out of luck in terms of getting access to new therapies. But talking to some friends this weekend who I'm working with who have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and they keep watching and going, here's another disease in which the government seems to swing into action to get access to experimental agents, but also to front-load clinical trials. Why can't this happen for all diseases? And I've been working with them for a couple of months now, and think the sort of benefits that we saw in HIV and in breast cancer in terms of being able to reform the NIH's decision-making process to influence the FDA have not sort of happened across the board. And the sort of speed which is happening with COVID-19 right now harkens back to the way we were able to get them to expedite and improve research for HIV rather than the sort of business as usual for other rare or new diseases. I don't know if you know that Barbara Brenner, Breast Cancer Action's first executive director, died of ALS. Um, and so the kind of, for us, the connection between all these diseases are different, right? I don't want to draw too strong a parallel between, you know, infectious disease and breast cancer and ALS. But there's, what we always say is that the work we do at FDA or EPA matters for breast cancer, but it also matters beyond breast cancer. And I think that talking about this issue of drug approvals, you know, I know we had previously done a little bit of work together with a lot of other very smart people talking about these issues. And I believe you made the point that industry got a hold of ACT UP's messaging around a sluggish FDA and said, hang on a minute, this sounds great. Let's actually push for fast approvals because these short, fast trials don't cost nearly as much. We can bring our experimental to market with breast cancer, what's happening or all cancers is that the majority of new cancer drugs that are approved by FDA come to market without showing overall survival benefit. And that's shocking and appalling. You know, in my view, those drugs are still experimental. If a drug hasn't been shown to help people live longer or feel better, it's not an improvement in what we have. And if it's not an improvement, the only other reason to approve it is because it costs less and therefore gets in the hands and mouths of the people that need it. So I think it's good to see that this is a model of how to ramp up clinical trials quickly 
we should not lessen the or lower the standards of approval and, you know, the data that's required to show safety and efficacy. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch what happens in the coming months and years as the public clamors, because I think that you're right, there's kind of a common narrative that like, give me something, something is better than nothing, as if people at the end of their life who are dying from cancer actually benefit from fourth line chemotherapy. In fact, many of them die sooner if they're exposed to the next round of treatment. Yeah, I mean, and what's stunning to me at this moment is that conservatives and libertarians never let a crisis go to waste. And the president, I think it's often talked about right to try legislation and the need to push the FDA aside in the context of the development of new coronavirus drugs. And the point is, is that, as you said, for cancer drugs, but for a lot of new drugs coming on the market, we have very little support for their clinical efficacy in extending survival or making people's lives better. You know, we've had drugs for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy that went on the market in a tiny study with a handful of young boys that moved a surrogate marker by a couple of points that really had no discernible clinical benefit and then went on the market for $700,000 a year or some extraordinary price tag. And so we're getting drugs faster under the market than ever, but we're knowing less and less about what they do and paying more and more for them. And so maybe sort of libertarian conservatives who never liked the FDA in the first place see this as an opportunity to sort of slip one by us in, in terms of new coronavirus agents that actually don't do any good. But that's something we have to be on the lookout for and keep an eagle eye open for sort of things that are trying to slip through the gates without being useful to patients themselves. Yeah, your point about conservatives or, you know, I'm going to say industry never let a crisis go to waste is an important one. What we're seeing, and I'm changing gears from treatment to prevention, of course, a lot of our work is around environmental root causes of cancer and these involuntary exposures. And so, of course, the EPA has basically dropped monitoring during the crisis. And so I think this might be a moment to switch to talk about a precautionary approach to public health and the importance of taking action before something becomes a problem. We obviously see it with COVID-19. We see it with these environmental health issues. Prevention is critical not only for, you know, kind of infectious disease like COVID-19, but also exposure to toxic chemicals. I think in both cases, once the virus or the toxin is out, it's out, it's on the loose, we can't put it back in the bottle. And I feel that the precautionary principle applies equally to treatment and to primary prevention, right? It's the same principle at work, the flip side of the coin. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's interesting. Probably the greatest tool we have for addressing the COVID-19 epidemic and the coronavirus epidemic is something we're all doing right now, which is social distancing. It's just an incredibly powerful preventive measure that we can do to keep the virus from spreading in our communities. And it's interesting to me that instead of sort of blathering on about opening the country by Easter or by May 1st or by May 15th, the president isn't sort of exhorting everybody across the country to shelter in place to sort of apply good preventive practice to a pandemic. Social distancing, you know, none of us really heard of the term until the coronavirus epidemic, but its roots are deep, deep into antiquity about how to prevent infectious disease. It's, it's common sense disease prevention, and it's great to look for new cures, to hope for a vaccine, but it's really important to use the preventive tools you have in your hands at the very moment to sort of stem the disease's course. And it's interesting. We all feel sort of powerless sitting in our homes and being able to sort of do what we feel needs to be done to sort of combat this epidemic. But we often forget that just by doing this, we are doing so much to protect our neighbors, our loved ones, 
our elderly relatives, our friends who might have had cancer or, or who had unsuppressed viral suppression from HIV, we are doing good prevention, disease prevention by staying at home. And it's people don't think it's an active intervention to feel like you, I'm just sitting on my butt all day in front of computer or in front of the TV or on my bed. But it's an incredibly activist, generous act of solidarity we're doing, which I think is really important. We need to sort of feel good about it's something good that we're all doing for our communities right now. Yeah, I really like that reframing that, that this is an act of generosity, compassion, support, love. So let's talk about the people who are most impacted. We heard in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic that this is equal opportunity virus, but we know that COVID-19 is killing African-Americans at greater rates than other groups. We know that prisoners and older people and the unhoused, that there's vulnerable members of our community that are absolutely at the greatest risk. And this is not just a matter of genetics. Breast cancer, so often disparities get explained away as if there's you know, some biological root cause. And we know that health disparities are the result of centuries of discrimination, that racism has a physical impact on the body and the immune system, and that matters for cancer and for COVID-19. We know that people of color earn less and they own less and they have less opportunity and we know that African-Americans and other people of color are more likely to work in service sector jobs that are you know, now deemed essential, but that expose them to greater risk. They're more dependent on public transportation, you know, just generally more likely to be in close contact with other people and have less opportunity to shelter in place and to isolate. And to your point, it's like, if these are the people who we are depending on to deliver the food, we need to do our part to keep them safe and make sure that resources are available, but then also go beyond this current moment and figure out how do we fix these gross inequities in the first place. I think this is there's a big project for us to be working on, and which is rebuilding our society and economy to be more just. Yeah, no, I mean, once again not infectious diseases alone, I think cancer, chronic diseases like diabetes, they all sort of are an x-ray onto the state of our society. And as you're saying, coronavirus is no exception. The racial disparities in the cases and the deaths we're seeing right now are astounding, but not unsurprising. The people who are most at risk are the people we sort of forced out of our circle of care in the United States, the undocumented, the homeless, who use drugs, who are often forgotten during times of crisis, but are just as important as you or me at this point, because unless we can deal with the new coronavirus in the context of every person in this country who has it, we're not going to sort of put it behind us in the long term. So our health is as important as the most vulnerable person among us. And, you know, we are all our brothers and sisters keepers in a way that is sort of epidemiologically true at this moment, even if politically and socially we tend to forget that. You know, this is true with breast cancer and with AIDS as well. There's this tendency to judge the people that get sick, to stigmatize the disease. There's this jump to judge the behaviors of those who get sick as if they somehow deserve it. And as if if we separate ourselves by arguing that we are living cleaner and healthier and more purely or whatever, that somehow we won't get whatever dreaded disease. I haven't seen as much of that so far with COVID-19. I'm wondering if you think it'll emerge over time or just what your thoughts are. What have you seen and, and where do you think this might go? My fear is that where this is going to play out is with antibody testing. And that if Greg gets a clean antibody test, 
if I have an antibody to COVID-19 and I'm considered immune, which is not a given based on the sort of immunology of the disease as we know it now, there's going to be a two classes of citizens, those who can show that they've been exposed and are recovered from the disease uh, and people who remain susceptible or, God forbid, had a positive PCR test and are actively infected. And so I think there's going to be a chance for some very bad behavior in terms of who gets to go back to work, who gets to go into restaurants, or you're going to have to show an app on your phone that says, I, I'm antibody positive and I'm quote unquote clean. And this is real dystopian future I hadn't even gotten to. No, no, but you know, a lot of the stuff around contact tracing and antibody testing is turning to the tech solutions. I mean, you're going to have an antibody passport that says that you're quote unquote safe to deal with in a workplace or in any other sort of outdoor setting, or are you a health risk? We don't want you in here because you can get sick, but if you're susceptible, it means you could be asymptomatic and not even know it. So I think there are going to be a lot of sort of thorny questions about how we think about antibody status in, in the weeks and months ahead. That's such an interesting direction that I hadn't even pursued, really. The thing that I've been thinking so much about is the impact on the rest of our health. With breast cancer, we always say we're not just after saving the breast, we're after healthy people, human beings. And I know that folks who are living with cancer are feeling incredibly worried about the impact that this pandemic is having on the system and on their ability to get treatment. You know, we know that while telemedicine can fill some gaps, cancer patients need imaging, surgeries are being delayed, you know, radiation and chemotherapies cannot be done from home. Other groups are struggling to get medication, you know, and not just because it's being siphoned off for, for use in COVID, it's just those basic problems with, with accessing medications. And I think one of the biggest fears that the cancer community has is that if their cancer status is known, they will not get the care that they need and deserve if they do develop COVID-19, that they will be discriminated against, deprioritized, devalued, and ultimately denied treatment in favor of, of other people. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a real fear. And in fact, the HIV Medical Association, the Infectious Disease Study of America, actually put out a guidance saying people with HIV who are on antiretroviral therapy have the same life expectancy prognosis as quote-unquote normal people. And so if you're deciding who to give a ventilator to, you should be not using disease status as a way to make that decision. But I think it goes for cancer. It goes for any sort of disease. The point is, is that when we have a scarcity of ventilators or, for instance, we have a scarcity of a new experimental drug for coronavirus that comes on the market, let's say, let's say from our perspective, it has enough data to suggest that it should get to give an approval. We don't have enough of it to go around. I'm starting to triage people based on their history of breast cancer or their history of HIV, or there's a sense that lifestyle factors, which they love to tell us in cancer and HIV are the cause of our disease, may predispose you to greater risk of serious COVID disease like obesity. But whether somebody is medically determined to be obese or not shouldn't determine whether they get access to a ventilator or necessary treatment. Otherwise, you can have physicians making decisions that are really baseless in terms of their ethical and their medical uh, justification. And the other thing is, you know, I have people I love who are undergoing cancer chemotherapy right now, and my greatest fear is that they're going into the hospital to get their, their chemo or their radiation, and 
as much as they're being sort of bubble wrapped as they go in there to, to prevent infection, they are still going into hospitals that are at the epicenter of the epidemic right now. And it's a real thing. And you can't delay treatment at this point, but you also have to sort of take the best care you can to make sure that our friends and loved ones who are living with cancer are able to be protected as they go into needed health appointments. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting with breast cancer because estimates are that 20%, I mean, that's one in five screen detected breast cancers are overdiagnosed and overtreated. And so there's, but of course, breast cancers are not all the same. And there's incredibly aggressive breast cancers that are fast growing and for which we do have effective treatments and, you know, which are life-saving. And so there's this sort of tension and there's an imperative to really sort out which things can be delayed. For example, routine screening when there is no symptom or sign that there may be breast cancer, but just you know, routine screening to look for early signs of the disease, consensus is that can be delayed. When can systemic therapies be used before surgery to keep somebody out of the hospital? We know surgery has, it's a big hit on the immune system. And, and you know, for something like DCIS, which is a non-invasive you know, they call it cancer, but it's basically stage zero. It's a pre-cancer. It's a condition that puts somebody at risk for invasive cancer. This is maybe the time to start pushing again to look at the role of active surveillance and just a watch and wait approach to not expose people to the harms of treatment when getting treatment puts them at greater risk. And, and again, to conserve the, the resources for the folks that really need it now. Breast cancer just is a range. There's some very slow-growing disease and then there are more aggressive cancers, and, and we got to be able to make smart decisions that are individualized and, and also based on an individual person's values and risk threshold. You know their own their own preferences and views on this stuff. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. This is going to be a natural experiment of, of sorts because certain sort of non-critical medical interventions are going to be delayed, and maybe that's for you know, quote unquote stage zero breast cancer, but we'll be, we're going to be able to see a whole range of medical procedures that have been delayed or, or postponed over the, over the course of the next few years. And I think we're going to be able to, be able to mine the observational data to see if there's any sort of benefit, particularly when people are already sort of part of an electronic medical record or, or, or a health system already. So let's talk about where we go from here. You know, what are the lessons? What are the lessons from, you know, your work as an AIDS activist, from breast cancer, you know, the lessons around the need for a functioning healthcare system that is not just driven by the profit motive, the need to attend to the most vulnerable people and invest in public health and, you know, the need to support each other, to take care of each other, and to be good allies and push for system change that's ultimately going to benefit everyone, but is really centered on the most vulnerable. So what do you think are the primary lessons from your work as an activist, a health activist for, for decades? You know, I was talking to somebody this morning who's trying to think about what the day after is. And the day after COVID-19 is a totally changed world. I think of this as sort of equivalent of something like World War I was in, in continental Europe. It was such a cataclysm for the continent that nothing really sort of, the whole world had changed during the teens in the last century. I think we're going to see a similar sort of seismic shift in our world after COVID-19. 
just think of the millions of people unemployed right now, the people who are losing loved ones across the United States and across the world. I think basically we have a new world about to open up before us and we have a chance to decide what that world is going to look like. I do think that the reason we have such a terrible epidemic here is not to put Donald Trump to botch the initial response and continue to screw up day after day after day. We made a pact with ourselves long ago in our history that we didn't want national health insurance, right? So we have millions of people outside of the circle of care who are visibly vulnerable to the disease. We made a pact with ourselves that we didn't think we needed a social safety net and that we approved Bill Clinton, we were going to end the government as we know it, or you know, if you were Ronald Reagan, that you were going to say something like, there's words in the English language, or I'm here from the federal government and I'm here to help. The sort of disdain for sort of this, the state and the safety net, our unwillingness to sort of provide healthcare to all Americans, has left us vulnerable. And you hear, you hear people from strange places, like very conservative Republicans who hated the ACA, talking about the need to extend or set up an extraordinary enrollment period, or you, or you, you hear bipartisan support for extending unemployment benefits in the crisis. And so I think where we're going is, I'm going to put my bet on a better world. You know, the Financial Times, which I don't consider a particularly liberal publication, you know, was putting out an editorial a few weeks ago about the need to strengthen the social safety net in Europe and in the UK. And maybe this is the end of the Reagan-Thatcher era of sort of austerity economics, of the sort of cramped state where the market sort of has totally control over our lives. Maybe that's where we're going to go and we're going to band together and we're going to have national health care in the United States. We're going to have a safety net so that if this happens again, you don't have to worry where your next meal is coming from or where you're going to live or how you're going to get access to all the other services you might need in a crisis. And so I think that the question is whether we can build for that. A friend of mine who I was talking to this morning was saying, you know, move on the liberal progressive organizing platform. Got a million new members over the past few weeks. Maybe we're seeing the, the turn of a movement to greater equality, greater equity in health, and across the board, not just for people who are HIV or people living with breast cancer, but for our entire community of people living on this in this country and on this continent. And so I think the, the main goal for me now is, like, as you said earlier on, disease is uh, or not just about the biology and the genetics and the virus. It's about the social determinants of health, the political determinants of health. And, you know, Yes, we need better treatments for breast cancer, we need better treatments for HIV, we need a cure for both. But we can work on the social and political determinants of health as that if they're a matter of life and death, because they are. And we know, as you were saying, in the context of COVID-19, who you are, where you live, have often been the determinant whether you actually survive this infection or not. And so I think that's where we go now, is we fight for a better, just world, not because it's the right thing to do, but it's the thing that's going to keep us all safe from another pandemic just like this. Well, the stakes are high. I really appreciate your thoughts on this. And I just want to acknowledge that the moral arc of the universe may be long, but it must be bent to justice. And so I'd like to ask as a closing question, what does direct action look like in an age of social distancing? How can we make noise and make our voices heard? You know, you talked about moveon.org, but you know, how do we build community and solidarity and do radical work while we're sheltering in place? Well, you know, we're talking to each other on Zoom. I was on a call with 
300 people from around the country thinking about how to do just this the other day. So one is, you know, we may bemoan these new electronic means of communications, but they are platforms for getting us to talk to each other. Unlike, you know, just typing into Facebook or Twitter, we do get to talk face to face or camera to camera. The other thing is that we're not totally powerless in the context of social distancing. I was part of a protest last week at the governor's mansion in Hartford, Connecticut to plead for the release of people who are incarcerated in our jails and prisons in the state. And we were in our cars and we did a honkathon driving around the governor's mansion honking our horns. This has been going on for the past week with other honkathons. There's a group of radical projectionists in New York called the Illuminators and there's a, Robin Bell is another one in DC that take a big projector and project onto the Trump Hotel or, or from one skyscraper to another saying, where are the tests? I, I think there's ways to do solo protests or group protests in a way that's creative and doesn't present risk for transmission of infection. And this is the challenge. So like I've been making to everybody I've been talking to, think of your your own next best idea. The Concathon was great. These projections, these gigantic projections on the side of Trump hotels or on skyscrapers in New York are useful. I've seen people do big banner drops with one or two people, definitely six feet apart, but catch people's attention. Using our home windows to put up signs to spread the word for what needs to be done. So I don't think we're, I think we have to get creative. And this might be a big flourishing of new ideas and new strategies for social justice in the midst of a pandemic. Fabulous. I like it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Greg. I just really appreciate it. It was just fantastic to talk with you. Sure. Will you take one last minute and tell me about the moment when you found out about the MacArthur Genius Award? I was in the apartment right after Labor Day and somebody called from a Chicago number and said to call me back and I'm like this sounds weird it just like it didn't say like it was Cecilia Conrad who was the MacArthur Foundation VP at the time and I and generally I don't call back numbers who I don't know it's like there's all this nor do I but this is this might get me to not that I'm expecting any kind of award like this but this might get me to change my thinking well it's a, just a robo call and I and I think they would yeah I think they would have figured out other ways to get to me if I didn't call back. But I called back and I thought I was being pranked. It was unbelievable. And, you know, it just, it just startling. Nobody expects anything. It was a total surprise to me. Well, congratulations. It's well-deserved and exciting. It's um, one of the things that makes me feel good about the world and, you know, the recognition that you are getting for your work and, and you know, the good work that you're doing. So thank you again for joining me on this. And if you have any last thoughts you want to share, anything that you want to say that I, I didn't ask you about? Um, only act up, fight AIDS, fight breast cancer, fight COVID. And thanks for, and Kuna, thanks for having me on your podcast. It was a great pleasure. Thank you again for joining me on this podcast. The coronavirus is profoundly disruptive, and we don't know what life will look like after the pandemic has passed. But those of us who are working for a more just and healthy world see that now is the time to work for what we want, to use this opportunity to push for the systemic change needed for health justice. And we must learn from history, centering the voices who've been most impacted and working from a place of radical compassion.
Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories, share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org, because together we can do something besides worry.